0: I'd like us to consider this evening uh, John chapter 3 John chapter 3 and commencing at verse 11 John chapter 3 and verse 11 Verily, verily, I say unto thee we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen. The Lord has just told the influential Jewish rabbi Nicodemus about the necessity of the new birth. That this religious teacher needs a supernatural inward change before he can enter into kingdom of God. Now, the Lord says here, we speak that we do know. Now, by using we there, uh, the Lord is probably referring to himself, along with all the Old Testament prophets, who also taught the necessity of the new birth. And so, we must not think that the new birth is a a new doctrine which the Lord was just introducing because Nicodemus should already have known about the new birth. Now this teaching on regeneration, the new birth, is what we, the Lord's prophets, know in our hearts. Indeed, every true believer knows about the new birth by personal experience where once there was a heart totally indifferent to God and to his law there is now a heart which hates all sin there is now a heart which desires earnestly to serve God Mere human will could not have induced this change. It's a supernatural work of God. The man who once felt so at home in an unbelieving world now endeavours to be separate from it, seeking out the fellowship of God's own people. So this transformation is the Holy Spirit's work. It is the new birth. We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen. And so this inward transformation has been the message of the prophets throughout the ages. Yet the Lord says to Nicodemus and to the Jews generally, ye receive not our witness. Nicodemus was a spiritual leader, yet he temporarily and many of his colleagues permanently would reject the doctrine of the new birth because the necessity of the new birth strikes at all human pride. This doctrine declares that a man is devoid of any righteousness of his own, rendering him acceptable to God. A man rather has to abandon all trust in the things which he thought made him a good person. He must rather throw himself upon God's mercy in Christ. This is why when we preach the gospel we frequently offend people. As in concern for their souls, we point out that, for example, support for charities, an activity engaged in by many despisers of Christianity, can actually make no one righteous in God's sight. The world then hates this doctrine of the new birth. People hate being told that they are under the wrath of God and need to become totally new creatures in Christ or else remain eternally lost. People hate being told that their politically correct attitudes do not make them good people in the sight of God. People hate being told that to follow Christ means separation from this world and from its sins and its fashionable ideologies. The Lord goes on in verse 12. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? The earthly things are what a man experiences upon earth. And in the immediate context, the Lord means a man's need of a new heart and of the new birth. The earthly thing is man's utter sinfulness and need of new life. Nicodemus must understand this basic teaching. That a man needs to be inwardly washed and renewed on this earth before he can ever be fit for the kingdom of heaven. There must first be heartfelt repentance from all sin and an abandonment of all thoughts of one's own goodness. Now, these initial gospel doctrines, these earthly things, must first be understood before Nicodemus can begin to understand deeper, more heavenly doctrines, such as. Our Lord's eternal sonship is leaving aside his glory to become a man, he's being born of a virgin. If Nicodemus believed not the plain earthly matter of the sinfulness of his own heart, how much less will he begin to understand the deeper mysteries? of the faith. There will be no deeper knowledge of heavenly things until a man first deal with the earthly matter of removing his sinful heart. When we are witnessing to Muslims they so often challenge us about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his eternal sonship and it is so hard even though we quote to them text after text to bring them to appreciate this precious truth so we will need to focus upon the earthly things upon something even more fundamental they will not understand the eternal sonship of Christ because they first need to be born again. They need to have their corruption and spiritual blindness removed. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And so it is so often good in our witnessing to focus upon this earthly matter of the sinfulness of the human heart. The Lord goes on in verse 13 here. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now, our Lord uses the term Son of Man to denote his messianic Status. And Nicodemus would have understood the term in that light. We find the term in Daniel chapter 7. We read in Daniel 7 and verses 13 and 14 these words I saw in the night visions, and behold, One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. Now the Lord is telling Nicodemus here That he is the one who has come down from heaven. That he is the one of whom Daniel was speaking. That he is the eternal son of God manifested in the flesh. Now this is one of the heavenly doctrines referred to in verse 12. What prophet has ever physically gone up to heaven to discover its secrets and then come back down to earth to impart his findings? Not one. For even the Old Testament prophets were mere earthbound mortals needing external enlightenment from heaven. The Son of Man, by contrast, is he who has eternally existed in heaven. And then, in verse 14, the Lord again refers to the Old Testament Scriptures. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Here the Lord refers to the rebellion of the Israelites in the wilderness and he uses the event to illustrate Nicodemus's need to understand the basics of the faith and the need to become a new man and to be saved through the death of a crucified saviour. Well, let us just Consider for a moment the Old Testament reference. Numbers 21 verse 6. Numbers 21 verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. Much people of Israel died. Then a little further on we read. Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses... Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass, that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. So Moses was to erect upon a pole, in public view, a representation made of brass of the deadly snakes which were plaguing Israel. Whoever was then bitten by a snake, if he looked up to the brass serpent hung upon the tree he would not die from his sting but instead would be healed. In the same way the Son of Man is to be lifted up upon a tree and upon his person will be laid the deadly curse of the world's sin. Whoever today looks with the eye of faith upon the crucified Christ, bearing the sins of the world, such will be saved from eternal death. So the Lord continues in verse 14 here, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so that event in the wilderness and the great affliction of those poisonous snakes and the remedy for it is prophetic of the coming of Christ and his salvation. The Lord says here in verse 15 that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. All men have been stung by Satan. They are sinful by nature as a result. All are passing into an eternal condemnation because of sin. But the cross is the one remedy. Nicodemus must realise this. The Son of Man has to be lifted up as the sinner's substitute. Without his death, no one can be rescued from their deserved eternal condemnation. The Lord says in verse 16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So here is the purpose of God sending his son to die. Our Lord has just alluded to his own impending death upon the cross by reference to the brazen serpent lifted up upon a pole of wood in the wilderness. Whoever was bitten by the serpents, if they looked upon the brazen serpent hanging upon the pole or the tree, they were healed. That Old Testament deliverance from a physical plague foreshadows the spiritual deliverance which comes from looking to the crucified Son of God, looking unto him for mercy. So, The context of John 3.16 is being saved from a poison which quickly kills, a poison which is deadly. Whoever looks up to Christ in faith is saved from the deadly poison of sin. We are living in a society which is terrified by a pandemic. Terrified. Now, we of course acknowledge that there is a place for sensible precautions. But our society is terrified. Oh, that they were more terrified about the pandemic of sin in the human heart god so loved the world the word so in that phrase means not so much but in this way in this way god loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so The Father's giving of his Son to be lifted up upon a cross is the way in which God has loved the world. That is how he has chosen to love the world, by causing his Son to die upon the cross. In this way, through means of a sacrificial death, God manifests his love to the world. And so John says in his first epistle 1 John 4 and verse 9 1 John 4 verse 9 In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is his love not that we loved God but that he loved us And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So it is God who has taken the initiative. God did not love us because we first loved him. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God moved in mercy towards those who neither desired his love nor deserved his love. You see, people talk about the love of Jesus today as if it's a basic human right. Oh, Jesus never judges anyone because he loves everyone. No one deserves the love of Jesus Christ. No one has a right to to it it is all a matter of God's grace now the apostle john in his first epistle as we just saw used the word propitiation very important word that and we often should not look for a kind of simpler word because we may well lose the meaning if we look for something simpler Propitiation means the satisfaction of God's perfect justice upon sin. God's holy wrath upon sin must be propitiated. It's a good word to get into our vocabulary. You see, we ought to build people up in their knowledge of the English language. Not boil everything down to the lowest common denominator. Let's build people up with these words full of rich meaning. God's wrath must be propitiated in a manner which upholds his absolute justice. So the love of God is not subjective affection but it manifests itself in the sphere of law and justice. The love of God involves the legal reconciliation of sinful men to the judge of all the earth. And this is what the cross accomplishes, reconciliation. Fallen men have always failed to keep God's law. They must therefore be condemned under that law. Their only hope is that another bears their penalty under the law on their behalf. Therefore, the father caused his wrath upon the wayward race to fall upon a representative of the race, his own son, born of a woman, born under the law. At the cross, the Son of God satisfied the demands of divine justice upon the sins of men. God so loved the world. Now we don't want to get into theological disputes here. We don't want to be seen to be joining camps, theological camps. But let us just simply say that from the context, there is no reason to believe that the word world means anything other than every single person in the world. The word whosoever clearly means not the same number of people as comprises the world but a lesser number taken from the world namely those who believe in Christ. Such will not perish. We assert with all of our hearts that God is sovereign in salvation. No one can come to Christ unless the Father first draws them. But at the same time, we cannot argue that God's purpose of mercy to the fallen race is confined to just a few. And so we preach the gospel to all men. Some dear brethren whom we love and respect argue that the word world means only the elect. But if the Lord was seeking a word to describe the relatively small number of those chosen to salvation compared to the rest, a mere remnant of mankind, one could hardly think of a more inappropriate term to use than the inclusive, universal, all-embracing term, the world. God so loved the world. The Lord himself uses the term world in John 15 and verse 18 to describe the masses of people who hate him on the day of judgment none of the lost will be able to claim that there was no love of god ever tendered to them no one will be able to accuse god of injustice No one will be able to claim, well, I did not believe because God did not choose me to believe. 1 John 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. God will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. Titus 2, verse 11. The grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation to all men. 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. We trust in the living God, who is the Saviour of all men. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is long-suffering toward us, to usward, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. God so loved the world. And then the Lord continues in verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. When our Lord wept over Jerusalem, he wept over every single non-believer in it. He wept over those upon whom he himself would shortly bring down judgment. He wept over those who refused to be gathered to him as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. Why did he weep? Because he desired to gather them, but they would not come. He desired them to be saved, but they would not come. From his heavenly throne today, he continues to desire to gather to him the world of unbelieving men. So no one initially is outside of the scope of God's love. A universal offer of love and mercy, however, does not mean universal salvation. Relatively few out of mankind will be saved. Such is the hard-heartedness of fallen man. Our Lord says in verse 18 here, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here again we see the emphasis upon faith. Our Lord's death affects salvation for those who believe. Faith includes acknowledging one's sin and condemnation And relying solely upon Christ for mercy. What a comfort for us is this emphasis upon believing, upon faith. He that believeth on him is not condemned. The message is not, he that works for the rest of his days, straining to do all that he can to merit God's favour, will be saved. He who believes today will be saved today. So this is a message full of God's grace. The cross is all about the grace of God to undeserving sinners. Now this verse 18 also tells us that the non-believer is already. In a state of condemnation. He is not in a state of neutrality. The non believer, if he dies today, is lost being the enemy of God, being already condemned. God has loved the world in this way that he has given his son to die upon the cross he graciously tenders his mercy to all but man in God's sovereignty has the responsibility to embrace that mercy by heartfelt repentance from sin and faith in Christ man is in an absolutely hopeless condition. There is nothing about him that is good in God's sight or that can save him. You see, one of the problems we have in contemporary society with its abandonment of the Christian faith is that men are going about to build up their own righteousness and they think that they are Righteous people, because they embrace the philosophies of the moment. So they believe in equality. And believing in equality, of course, means embracing sinful lifestyles. But these people, they say, oh, well, I believe in equality, I don't condemn anybody. They are building up their own idea of Righteousness. But in reality, all that they are doing is manifesting their own unworthiness. Man's heart is corrupted, completely corrupted, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Man's only hope is to become a brand new person. It is the cross that brings about this transformation of the person. It is the cross that demonstrates the universal love of God reaching out to sinful men. It is the cross that removes the deadly poison of sin. It is the cross that satisfies God's justice the propitiation for the sins of the world. The Son of Man has been lifted up upon a cross. This is the heart of the Christian message. Nothing is more fundamental than this. So what do we preach? What will we preach tomorrow in High Wycombe? The Son of Man has been lifted up upon a cross. You are dying from the poison of sin. You must be born again. Your only hope is repentance from sin and faith in the crucified Saviour. Amen.